Hello, and welcome to Investment Week's podcast for May, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories and speak to leading investors about the most important issues on their minds. I'm your host, Anna Fedorova. I'm the Deputy News Editor of Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. In this episode of the podcast, we are talking about investing in alternative asset classes and exploring investment opportunities off the beaten track. Investment markets globally have continued to rally year to date, sparking concerns about a possible correction and forcing investors to look for less correlated strategies. Joining us in the studio to talk about this is Charles Hepworth, who is in charge of the discretionary fund management proposition at GAM. Hi, Charles. Hi, Anna. Um, now, you tend to invest in less mainstream funds that are less accessible to retail investors. Where might investors look for ideas off the beaten track, and um, what's kind of a good starting point for them? We really believe that Alpha lies with the portfolio manager rather than the fund group, um, and therefore follow managers more than the fund, particularly. To give a working example here, GAM was previously invested with Jeremy Lang when he ran money at Lion Trust, um, and then he took some time out in, you know, just before the financial crisis to return at Ardevra, where he is now. He launched that business, and that sparked our interest to re-engage, um, and we invested with him when he launched there. So these new or boutique managers, um, how can they um, differentiate themselves from, from the mainstream to be noticed by fund buyers like yourself? I think, unfortunately, for most boutiques, uh, performance is going to be their first and most important means dif- to differentiate themselves um, and what most of the market will predominantly consider. Um, but we try and be a little bit more flexible on pure performance metrics, um, and our understanding of the process and management style is more important, I think. Clearly, a track record helps um, helps us to establish a link between how they position the portfolio, whether they made any changes, and any behavioural aspects to the fund. Um, but probably the most important factor, I think, is that the manager stays true to themselves in their mandate they're running, um, and you know, particularly suits their style. Um, while it's subtle when this is correct, it's a surefire way to differentiate oneself and be rejected from further analysis if a manager simply has the wrong mandate. But nevertheless, it may be questionable whether they want to be well noticed. A lot of these boutiques um, you know, don't necessarily want to get into um, the hot money flows that, that are out there in the retail marketplace um, because it does obviously impact on their alpha potential. Um, but ultimately, a lot of DFM houses won't invest with certain managers below a certain fund size. Um, and even fund of funds, they've got a particular set of rules under USITS that they can't um, hold a, you know, a certain percentage above um, in a particular fund. So, you know, it's difficult for boutiques to obviously to get um, broad attraction in the retail marketplace. It's questionable where they really want to. But I think the real long-term um, determinant of their success is obviously going to be measured by the amount of assets obviously they grow to. And that's more often not down to the fact that they have longer-term um, strong investment performance. And in this alternative space, what are the most interesting launches you've seen in the last few years? Uh, within the USIT space, uh, where we're looking on daily deal, um, we believe the calibre of managers is continuously improving as more groups have looked to launch USIT's uh, products um, you know, post the financial crisis. Um, we're equally excited about upcoming launches. Many of these managers we've been already conducting research, few, uh, research on them for quite a while now um, through the hedge fund business um, uh, research side, but we'd rather probably keep these quiet until perhaps they arrive in, in our portfolios at a later date. Um, I think the general move away f- after the financial crisis, as I said, from monthly dealing illiquid hedge structures to more liquid daily deal um, and less leverage structures is something that I welcome. With the rise of more single-themed equity long-short to market neutral 
to wider global macro styles and these structures. It enables us to construct what we feel is the best kind of alternative allocation for our clients at an aggregate level, rather than relying on just one single multi-style absolute return manager. In a world where cross-correlations are rising, most recently seen, I think, in the bond and equity sell-off we saw in Europe uh, last month, um, it's now you know more important than ever, really, for us to find non-correlated sources of return. So looking at our alternative allocations, um, which is quite high in the portfolio, I think, compared to our peer group, um, we've slowly been increasing this um, at the expense of traditional fixed income, where you know it's got really, really expensive as far as we can we can make out, and uh, it doesn't offer much um, longer term value for us now. So the requirement for us has been to find managers that generally have lower vol um, than broader equity or bond products now, um, but generating the historical kind of annual returns that investors had traditionally become used to in fixed income. So somewhere in the region of five to ten percent annual returns with a vol of um, a similar range of four to seven percent. That's what we're looking for. And do you think there are any investment offerings that are particularly missing from that space at the moment? I think it's difficult to replicate um, a lot of strategies in traditional hedge fund land um, within use its constraints. Um, you know, for instance, convertible ARB and merger ARB are simply not suited to a relatively lowly leveraged um, and liquid portfolio structure in USITs um, without negating a vast amount of alpha. Um, similarly, RV macro managers are difficult to come by in USITs, but on the whole, I think the retail marketplace continues to re-engineer and evolve better products, and this really can only benefit the client at the end of the day. And Charles, can you tell us a few examples of some interesting ideas that have delivered great returns in the past? Yeah, we've. Um, I think we've got a few different names to the rest of the peer group um, out there. Obviously, a lot of names are, are well held across most fund of funds, but two of our more, um, I say, outstanding return um, over the last year or so has been uh, River Mercantile Recovery, um, a position we started looking at in the summer of 2013. Um, the fund enjoyed some exceptional performance over the course of that year. And then we had 2014, which was a more difficult year for active managers. Um, as you know, and the fund, I think, found that their deeper kind of style of value and contrarian style of management was at odds, really, with a broader market return that favoured more of a kind of quality field, I think, in 2014. But so far, 2015 this year, and we've been invested with that, um, with Hugh Sargent there um, at River Mercantile. He's delivered um, you know, some outstanding returns for us, and he's back to the top of the performance uh, ranks and contributing very strongly for us um, to overall outperformance this year. So for us, it's knowing the reasons of the underperformance is you know, more important really um, sometimes than just the underperformance itself. Um, you know, he stayed true to his style, and that particular style, you, know, you can't blame a manager for having um, stayed true to that style that, that wasn't in vogue that year. It's not necessarily their fault. Um, another manager that we looked at in um, 2012, we were early stage investors in this particular manager, was a listed private equity fund um, in, run out of uh, Australia uh, in the name of Bar One. Um, the premise for the investment here uh, re- was really the large discount of the listed equity shares of private equity firms um, to their underlying and mostly stale reported asset values, um, almost to the tune of nearly 30%. So we saw obviously an expectation of a general recovery in equity prices globally, and it's unlikely that the listed private equity firms would be left behind in this kind of recovery phase. Um, and the discount to now provide us with a good sense of uh, you know, safety, really. Over the course of the last few years, the fund's delivered 21% for us since we invested um, on annualized return base, which is you know, certainly the top end of our um, return estimates. And we've seen the, narrow, uh, di- sorry, the discount narrow to a, 
a slightly cheaper level of 10 to 15%, but it's still arguably um, some good value opportunity still there. Thank you, Charles. Now, we have some thoughts from a senior industry figure about how to have a truly diversified portfolio. Hello, my name is Katrina Lloyd. I'm editor on Investment Week. Today, I'm joined by Didier Saint-Georges, Managing Director and Member of the Investment Committee at Carmignac. Didier, um, maybe you could just um, tell us briefly, what do you consider to be you know, effective diversification now for investors, considering the sort of distorted market environment in which we find ourselves? Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a very important question to address now because, uh, to a large extent, due to the intervention by central banks, a lot of assets have become very expensive, both in the equity space and in the fixed income space. And therefore, if you diversify sort of naively, just thinking that uh, by having lots of uh, different assets will reduce your risk, you're uh, uh, actually taking more risk because you're buying a lot of very expensive assets that you shouldn't own. And so the, the situation now is that if you, uh, if you want to reduce your risk in your asset allocation, you need to really focus on the few assets which are worth uh, owning. And by definition, inevitably, you'll have less diversification uh, than, than you would have had otherwise, which means that um, it's, uh, it makes a lot of sense next to this reasonably uh, concentrated portfolio of assets to own a fair amount of cash, even if cash doesn't generate any return anymore. Um, it's uh, uh, what I would call the barbell uh, approach now, where you have a reasonably focused uh, uh, assets in the portfolio, the ones you feel very convinced about, and against that you, you, you do own some cash to reduce the volatility of your uh, portfolio. Thank you very much. time for our news segment where we discuss some of the themes that we have been writing about lately and what they might mean for investors. I'm joined by Investment Week's features editor Hardeep Tawakli who will talk about contrarian investing. Hi Hardeep. Hi Anna. Now are we seeing more managers move to contrarian trades now that markets are fairly fully valued? Um, There are mixed feelings in the market currently. Some managers feel that most markets are fair value but there are others that think parts of it are fully valued. So this, combined with the fact that many traditional asset classes are a lot more highly correlated today than in the past, means the search for value, or contrarian trades, is becoming key. So I think it's fair to say there are definitely more managers looking to invest in unusual trades, in the hope that they could boost their portfolios. There's been a greater interest generally in value as markets have risen in price, and managers tend to find the best value opportunities in contrarian ideas. That's simply by virtue of the fact that a stock is cheap when it's being ignored by the market. Mm. So true value ideas are normally contrarian. You know, most managers will take on contrarian trades within their funds at the margin just for diversification purposes, really. But alongside this, I think it's fair to say there is a real need for active managers to do something different currently. It's one of the only ways Mm. for them to outperform. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be through contrarian trades, but they will have to diversify and do something different to the herd. The focus on active share has really brought that into fore in recent months. So what are some of the top contrarian picks that managers have been talking to you about recently? Um, So we've seen a lot of managers move towards emerging markets and emerging market debt, 
shorting inflation is another one as well. These trades are really about managers trying to move away from the current market consensus and, and second guess what is going to happen over the next year or two. From a geographical viewpoint in emerging markets, Vietnam is a country that's popped up a few times. In Southeast Asia, investors usually choose to go to Thailand or Malaysia when they're investing. Vietnam is less well known, yet it's got that stable political environment, something the other two don't to a certain extent. And it's also got more room for growth. Banking penetration, for example, is only 21% in Vietnam, and that's compared to something like 61% in Malaysia. So banking stocks are quite popular there. Uh, Franklin Templeton's Mark Mobius has been keen on Brazil recently. That's despite the sentiment being quite bad there currently. I think that's just due to the fact that despite the current bad sentiment, the overall picture has never changed. It's still got that growing consumer market, tremendous natural resources, reforms to corruptions, etc. I think, again, this is a trade where managers are just looking ahead, well into the future. Mark Mobius himself has said the results, they're not going to happen overnight, but in five years or so, the economic climate should be brighter. And then you've got the managers that look at trades from a bottom-up level. You've got stocks um, that are going through events that are basically create a genuine contrarian opportunity. Carpet Right, Moss Bros, they're two retail examples. They've been turned around by new management in recent years. There's a, there's a focus on sort of you know, saving costs, so that they're good contrarian opportunities. Um, M&G's John William Olson, who runs the Global Growth Fund, told Investment Week he thought Indivaya, a pharmaceutical company that was created at the end of last year from a spin-off of Reckitt Benkiser, uh, was another great example. Indivaya was formed in late December. Many people didn't want a small position in a single product company like that. They like Reckitt, which is a big, high-quality growth business. So while everyone was selling off in Indivaya, they actually established a meaningful position and the stock's risen some 40%. Of course, some of these ideas are quite risky, though, aren't they? Um, So what are the pitfalls of contrarian investing? It really depends. For emerging markets, it's not hard to see that the hardening dollar is going to be a key concern. Really, managers will need to hedge against that. It's an extra cost they're going to have to bear in mind, and that cost is only going to increase. Rising interest rates is another one they need to be wary of. I mean, in a way, most investors in emerging markets probably want the US to panic and dip down in order for the asset class to really benefit. I think the other key thing to remember about contrarian trades is that it's quite a lonely business. Few investors are lucky enough to buy at the bottom and sell at the top. There's normally a downside involved for many years before that stock's really going to pick up in value. And remember, some managers don't get it right. It can take years for an unloved asset to receive the attention it deserves. So if you look at somebody like Neil Woodford and his love of tobacco stocks, when he invested in early 2000s, they were at rock bottom. Everyone thought they'd go out of favour, there was a smoking ban that was coming in. It was, it was basically a dying trend. But he still holds them today, and, and that's 15 years later. It's, he holds them at quite a profit. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, Hardeep. We would love to hear your comments and ideas for future podcasts if there are any particular topics you would like us to cover. You can contact me via email at anna.fedorova, that's spelt F-E-D-O-R-O-V-A, at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening.